You're listening to The Gulf Stream, the official podcast of the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies at Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi. I think there's a there's a quote and it may just be general, it may be, um, but my father imparted me uh, upon me that th- there's nothing better for, for land than, than uh, a man or a woman's shadow. Yeah. And, and I think that's, obviously you can take that into other parts of your life, but being there is really important. And, Absolutely. Uh, and so I think that's some of what I've learned, you know, over the years. Let's dive in. All right, Jay Clayberg, welcome to the Gulfstream podcast. Thanks um, for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, you are no stranger to HRI these days, and and you know we we've been seeing you around the halls, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But um, before we get too deep into this, I'll introduce myself to our viewers and listeners again. Um, my name is Megan Radke. I'm the communications coordinator here at HRI, and um, I'm a producer and, and host of our little show here. So I'm um, always excited to be talking to some new folks. And so um, you're you're a lot of things, <laughs> a lot of good things. <laughs> yeah, good, good. Um, you're a conservation, conservationist. You've worked with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation. Um, you're, you know, the executive director of the Gulf of Mexico Trust, which I'm really excited to chat with you about. Yeah. Um, you're a producer, a filmmaker. So, um, you know, in your own words, just uh, tell our viewers and listeners a little bit about yourself. And a, and a father. Yeah, uh, that, that's one yeah. I feel like uh, professionally we always forget For sure. those responsibilities. Um, yeah, I grew up uh, not too far from here in Kingsville and uh, have spent the early part of my career in conservation, was living in, in Brazil, in the Brazilian Amazon for about three years. Um, trying to do some of the work that I'm doing now and bringing, convening um, uh, people from the private sector and conservation organizations to uh, conserve habitat, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I was in the private sector for a little while, I was in real estate for about a decade along the US-Mexico border. Wow, And then decided after the last recession uh, that, you know, if, if you look at cycles, it was going to happen again. Mm-hmm. And so decided to go back to business, uh, go back to school. I went to business school at UT in Austin. Okay. And there, you know, realized that uh, through an internship with the National Park Service, oh, wow. uh, where I got to do a business plan for the Grand Canyon, that there was... No big deal. No big deal, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and what's interesting now is we did this business plan and some of the work that we did was related to uh, investments that a park could make um, and and squirrel away funds for big infrastructure projects. And now we're seeing a lot of that come to fruition. So they're gonna be updating the water system uh, that takes water from the North Rim and delivers it down to um, the bottom of the canyon Mm -hmm. and then back up the South Rim. They're gonna be um, making those investments like in the next few wow, years and so awesome. saw at, at that point the intersection of my business experience and conservation experience and where i had grown up and an interest in wildlife and habitat and all of that um come to come to four so i love that. started with parks and wildlife foundation and then have continued you know a lot of that work and i would would say that the film and the um, professional side of things in conservation and you are realizing this too, is that you can't just do the work. Mm-hmm. You also have to advocate for it and oh, communicate yeah. out. And I think as a, 
as an industry, if you will, on the conservation and research side, that we haven't done as good of a job uh, as we could have in the past. Mm -hmm. And things are changing, right? So you've got to be doing it in a lot of different ways. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, I mean, that's why we're sitting here right now, right? We we have this 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 medium, this podcast medium, to um, talk about conservation, to talk about science, talk about research, um, but discuss it in a way that you know a wider audience can listen to it, a wider audience can understand, and therefore you know find their own connection with with those things. And so I think through film especially, and you know, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more, yeah. um, but through film especially, that really gives people an opportunity that maybe aren't you know, the, the outdoors people, but they can see these landscapes, they can see you know, wildlife issues and recognize how important mm -hmm. that stuff is yeah. and then make their own connection to it, so. Yeah, we're fighting for people's attention, mm -hmm. just like in the private sector, you're fighting for the money that's in people's sure. wallets or yeah. their bank account and that we're advocating in many cases uh, or creating awareness for things that can't speak for themselves, yeah. right? It's yeah. a natural resource, it's a, a bird or it's a fish and also putting it into terms mm -hmm. that um, people can understand and, and initially trying to get their attention, yeah. right? Yeah. And trying to make them fall in love with something so that either at that point or sometime in the future when they are asked to care that that they do yeah absolutely yeah. that's great that's a wonderful way to put that um you know talking talking a little bit about you know falling in love and connecting with the outdoors this is a little bit of an icebreaker thing to talk about yeah. but you know an audio podcast is one thing but when you've got three videos of uh, three cameras pointed at you <laughs> can be a little awkward so i thought an icebreaker question might be kind of fun but um so people might not know that you are a runner um mm -hmm. you're you're a trail runner um, yeah. i'm also a runner and so You've run the Leadville Silver Rush 50. Yeah. And anybody that's into ultra running and they hear Leadville, they know what that means. And when I say 50, I mean 50 miles. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's that's a pretty big deal. Um, so kudos to you on that. Thanks. So that's, that's a pretty, pretty amazing feat. But um, what I like to hear from other runners, especially is what is it, what is it that you really like about running and trail running in particular? Mm -hmm. Like, how does that help you, you know, connect to the outdoors and also connect to yourself? Yeah. I think probably the common thread amongst most runners, especially so I'm in, in my mid 40s, mm -hmm. uh, is that it it's a time and I run early in the morning and normally it's it's not light out yet. And so I'm, I get a chance to do that with a few other people. So for me, it's a little bit of a social thing. Um, there's not a whole lot of gear. It's mm -hmm. just you and your shoes and your body and maybe a, a headlamp. Mm -hmm. And you're able to focus on one thing. Mm -hmm. So it's great for me intellectually to be involved in all of these things, but it also means that I'm um, distracted or I'm scattered at it's, it's, it, it, certain points. Yeah. I have to kind of compartmentalize things as, as I go through the day. That's the first point uh, normally of my day where I can just focus on one thing Yeah, and it's not falling normally. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, and in the process, I'm catching up with friends and also I'm improving my my health. You're doing something for I'm yourself. I'm doing something for myself. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's it. I'd say the last thing is for me, it's it's a bit of a meditative process. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, rather than sitting down in a quiet place for 15 minutes and collecting my thoughts, mm -hmm. I get to do it for, you know, however long time however long i'm 
I'm out there. Um, and also I think specifically trail running, it's, it's like a real connection to the work. Yeah. It's, it's, it's easier. Uh, it's easy to do what we are doing and, um, you know, recreate, let's say, um, on the weekends, Mm -hmm. but spend a lot of time in the office. And that's a way for me to remember why I'm, I'm doing these things. Yeah, Um, for sure. I, I really, I've gotten to really enjoy it. And the last thing I would say is it's a very beyond road running. Mm -hmm. Um, and I got into triathlons and all these other things previously, there's no gear. Mm -hmm. And the, especially even with these races, there's a real sense of camaraderie and there's, um, there's a competitiveness to the races, but also, um, you know, we, I did a race out in uh, the Davis mountains and the guy who won was like wearing a flannel shirt <laughs> and I think maybe jean shorts of or course, something, you know, yeah. and it's like be? only in trail running, like, yeah. would you see that? So people aren't overly serious about uh, the, themselves. That's so true. And I, I think that's something that I noticed when I, I'm not a lifelong runner by any means. <laughs> I just started running in the last few years and first few trail races I did it was just cool to see that it wasn't taken very seriously and you pass a person or a person passes you and it's all these like pats on the back and it's yeah. like great effort runner you know you got this you got this and so that that sense of community is really nice but i totally agree it's such a meditative thing just just yesterday i had one of those like my my forest gump moments you know i've yeah. got a lot going on around here and it's all good stuff but like you said there's a lot of noise in my brain i'm, yeah. I'm in the middle of a move and so I just set out to, you know, for, to get a couple of miles in and, you know, five miles later, I'm still having a great day and still yeah, having a great yeah. time. And so I come home and I just feel so much better. And, yeah. But you're right. It, you know, it's just really nice to have that connection. And I, I think it, I was talking to someone else about this who had been an endurance runner for a long period of time. And then they stopped doing that for the very reason that you and I were just talking about. They were too much in their head. Mm, so mm-hmm. I think for some people it's, too much yeah but for me all of the good and bad creative ideas and and some transformational um, times in my life Mm -hmm. they have come from time outdoors so it's either that like 45 minutes or and there's a great book um, that's called the nature fix uh, and it talks about time outdoors kind of if you think about it linearly the the more time that you spend and it's called backcountry brain and it's i think 48 hours plus mm-hmm. if you're attuned to it and i think you probably are one of these people you've had those experiences where you've been camping or you've been in the outdoors for a couple of days and all of a sudden you're having these like super creative thoughts or you yeah. think oh, i hadn't thought of that before and in some instances my wife always jokes because whenever i come back from something like that i have some <laughs> grand idea yeah um and she's like waiting for it but but there's science it's very cool because you have this natural experience that's not tied to the lab or anything but they've mm-hmm. actually gone back and and from a neuroscience perspective they can identify that that truly is something that's happening in your brain and wow. so you're getting something 
from it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think I've, I've, I've heard of something similar. It might be from the same book, but I know mm-hmm. that I've heard um, Steve Nornella from, from mm-hmm. Meteor talk about something similar. And, you know, when you're out in the backcountry for so long and you don't have access to your phone and you don't have access to your email, you just become um, so much more in tune with yourself and so much more in tune with, with everything that's going on around you and just a more like natural version of, of yourself. And yeah. it's only something that the outdoors can do. So it's yeah. really... It's it's really special, but um, so talking about the outdoors and, and you know more of your connection to it. So you mentioned it when we got started. You have a big connection to South Texas. You are you have a big connection to Texas. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you grew up on the King Ranch. Mm-hmm. Is that right? That's right. Okay. And so our, our viewers and listeners have probably heard of the King Ranch. Mm-hmm. If, if nothing else, they've probably seen, you know, a King Ranch edition Ford truck go by and, you know, <laughs> wondered like, what's the deal yeah. with that? Um, so King Ranch is, is a very large piece of property. It's here in South Texas. It's larger than the state of Rhode Island. Um, but so there's a, there's a lot of history and a lot of, you know, big Texas legacy associated with the King Ranch. Mm-hmm. So I would love it if you could, you know, just kind of dip your toes into that yeah. a little bit and explain sure. some of that. And Corpus has a tie to all of it because uh, Captain Richard King and Mifflin Kennedy were steamboat captains on the Rio Grande uh, in the 1830s and the 40s. And Captain King uh, came to Corpus for uh, the equivalent of a state fair and had uh, ridden through a sea of grass, essentially between Brownsville and and here, the Wild Horse Desert. And it was sort of on the waning years of the steamboat business at that point. Um, and they, he, I think, was looking for a way to diversify what mm. he had uh, had built down on the, the Rio Grande and uh, bought some land on the Santa Gertrudis Creek um, around 1853. And then ultimately, you know, he passes away in 1885 and Mrs. King doubles the acreage to more than a million acres today it's about 825,000 acres but she doesn't get a whole lot of credit mm-hmm. uh he's sort of the, the the face of all of it but um she helped build it to impart what it is today and then one of my ancestors robert clayberg who beat captain king in a case here in corpus <laughs> uh ends up marrying his daughter okay, okay and so that's how we sort of entered into the into the lineage and one of the things that I think is interesting to what I'm doing today is there's still a through a few through lines from uh, those original you know that original formation is he he did all of this for economic reasons mm-hmm. and I think a, a lot of what you see in Texas in terms of conservation because we are 95 percent privately owned that yes there is philanthropy involved mm-hmm. um, but a lot of things just make good economic sense. Right. Uh, and so when you look at in the mid uh, 1980s, when we opened up the ranch to hunting mm-hmm. and the hunting leases, it made good economic sense to do that. And now look at where that industry is in oh, Texas, gosh. right? Yeah, for sure. And then from a conservation standpoint, Caesar Clayberg goes down and he's living in, uh, in Cuero. He's a cousin of Robert Clayberg and ends up managing Norius, which is a division that's south of Baffin Bay, okay. kind of near Raymondville, and really is at the forefront at that point of the railroad, um, the port of port of Corpus Christi being developed, mm-hmm. uh, and seeing what a lack of regulation and market hunting was doing to waterfowl and white-tailed deer and turkey. Okay, 
And so he set out some of the first uh, sort of Aldo Leopold-like regulations mm -hmm. on uh, the ranch uh, and then was one of the first state preserves, which we had in the 1930s that were meant to repopulate the state with white-tailed deer and, and turkey Pencil. because that those, those um, uh, uh, populations were declining. And then he was on the predecessor to Parks and Wildlife Commission mm -hmm. uh, and um, set up the first uh, conservation uh, foundation, so founda private foundation for conservation uh, of wildlife in the state of Texas. Okay. So there's a lot of sort of those wow. genetics that are, I think, in me, whether I knew it or not, yeah. Um, yeah. in terms of my professional career. And um, and the ranch is continuing to do a lot of that work today. And Caesar Claver Wildlife Research Institute was established by Caesar. Uh, he was didn't have any children. And so he had some mineral interest set up a foundation with about $10,000 worth of funds mm -hmm. that today uh, has helped to um, 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 keep Caesar Claver Wildlife Research Institute um, at, you know, at the forefront of what yeah. it's doing. Yeah, they they certainly do some great work, and yeah. you know, we've we've been good partners with them. So, you know, it's it's interesting talking about the the private land aspect of things, and you know, the conservation that that takes place on those private lands. You know, I know that it's a conversation a lot among, you know, a lot of Texans, and I especially heard it when I was in my previous position at Texas Parks and Wildlife. I mm -hmm. was in the press office working with the Wildlife Division. Okay, and so um, I, I dealt a lot with them um, with a program called Lone Star Land. Stewards. Yeah. And so those are the landowners, you know, throughout the state that are just out there doing doing the most for not only their land, but, you know, as a result, like the the nearby cities and, mm -hmm. and you know, the creeks and the reservoirs that, you know, something that is on their land is flowing into. Absolutely. Right? And so, you know, I people might might hate the fact that Texas is so privately owned and may say, you know, where's our where's our public land? And, you know, we do have it. We we have we have public hunting lands. Mm -hmm. I don't unfortunately have any private land of my own. So most of the hunting I do is on public hunting lands. Yeah. You just have to know where to find that right. kind of thing, right? <laughs> but but again, you know, so much of that conservation is is taking place on those private lands. And I think that um I'll read really quickly just a, a quote from the former executive director, Carter Smith, because mm -hmm. he can put things in, in words a lot better than he I can. would ever be able to. <laughs> um, so this was something about Lone Star Land Stewards. He said that Texas is predominantly privately owned, irrespective of who you are and where you live. If you care anything about where the raindrops fall and where aquifers are recharged and where our springs, creeks, and rivers flow, our fish and wildlife habitats, where our clean air and water are derived, those places are largely found on private lands in Texas. Private landowners are the ones who wake up every day and work on stewarding those things that we all get to enjoy, sometimes directly and sometimes indirectly. And so when you're talking about, you know, the, the efforts that, um, you know, these private landowners are making to, mm -hmm. um, you know, restore populations of wild turkey, restore populations of white-tailed deer, you know, that's a, that's a really big deal. Mm -hmm. And so how how did you know growing up with this you know that that being your family and growing up you know um having that exposure to the king ranch how did that you talked about it a little bit but mm -hmm. how did that you know impact your own personal like land ethic yeah. and your own views on on wildlife and land conservation if you ask anyone who's associated with your work here about how they got involved mm -hmm. originally 
my guess is that they would have a story of either a grandparent or a friend or uh, but some experience outdoors is my guess or someone grabbing their hand and, and, saying, and, let's and saying let's go right <laughs> yeah. today maybe that's a film mm, uh, sure, you know, yeah. but but some experience and uh, someone that that helped them uh, begin that journey and so I was fortunate enough to have not only parents but cowboys and geneticists and wildlife biologists and businessmen and women whose sole purpose in life was to sustainably use a natural resource, mm -hmm. Mul multiple um, uh, uh, facets of that, right? But ultimately, if the soil wasn't healthy, then the grass wasn't healthy, healthy and productive and you didn't have uh, feed for cattle and mm -hmm. you didn't have habitat for wildlife. And so it all, it, it wasn't um, theoretical, it was practical. Like the things that you were doing and were conserving were, and again, not just for economic reasons, mm -hmm. that's not the only driver, mm -hmm. but they were, there were very practical reasons for doing the things that you were doing right. and even studying the things that you were studying. And as a kid, I spent a lot of time fishing and hunting and roaming around on my own. And so I had not just one experience, I had a lot of experiences yeah. that through osmosis and through a little bit of, of study, I would argue later on in life, um, became um, just sort of enamored by and in a, in a sense of responsibility mm -hmm. to pass that down. And you hear this from a lot of Lone Star land stewards, yeah. right? Is to pass this down to the next generation. Absolutely. And it's not theoretical. They really do mean that. And mm -hmm. they don't mean just their own generation. They mean all of those right. who, who benefit from uh, healthy land, air, and, and water, and, and wildlife. And you're also seeing now, I think, and this this isn't new to, to to this generation, but also an emphasis on the things that aren't just game animals. Oh, sure. You look at yeah. the, at the what, what's happening now, the spring migration of shorebirds and songbirds and waterfowl and all of that stuff, um, and what's happening legislatively at the federal level, even with Recovering America's Wildlife Act, is a emphasis on the things that you you, you don't have a necessary. Um, um, you know, it's not a game animal. You can't mm -hmm. hunt it necessarily, but we appreciate it. And I think a lot of that comes from private landowners who are out there every day and really care about it. Who are out there and, you know, they're, they're seeing, you know, they're seeing these animals and they're seeing, you know, how their land has changed. They're seeing how, you know, um, it just all, it all meshes together, right? Yeah. Like if, if one species is missing, then that's going to have an impact on another species. Exactly. And so it's all got to, it's all got to work together. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like, you know, again, you don't have to be a, a scientist or you don't have to be a private landowner to see this uh but you know i was talking with uh, one of your locals here chuck neiser a mm. couple of days ago and chuck's value in not only value but in in a conversation about habitat or oysters or a fishery is he's on the water All almost the every day yeah and so uh he has seen the changes mm -hmm. that you are you or I may have to read about sure uh, yeah. over you know a certain period of time and I think it's the same with whether you're a cowboy or a scientist or you're a landowner is you're you're there every day and so you really do I think there's a 
there's a quote and it may just be general. It may be, um, but my father imparted me, uh, upon me that th there's nothing better for, for land than, than, uh, a man or a woman's shadow. Yeah. And, and I think that's obviously you can take that into other parts of your life, but being there is really important. And, Absolutely. Uh, and so I think that's, some of what I've learned, you know, over the years. Yeah. And you mentioned at the, at the top of our conversation that, you know, you're a father and that's, that's a big part. Of, yeah. It's a huge part of your life, obviously. And so being able to, I'm sure, impart that same kind of, um, you know, those same thoughts onto your, onto your daughters and, and helping them understand, you know, without, we were talking when you first came in about, you know, um, watching you two, um, on the, on the devil's river. Yeah. And, you know, I, there was a part, um, that particularly struck me she said is this going to be here when i'm grown up mm -hmm. and so i think that really plays into you know exactly what you said in in the next generation you know really caring about these things and and they're they're the ones that are going to make sure that you know a lot of these things are still here yeah. and, and are taken care of so and to me to the degree that i can it's showing them by example yeah in my actions not just telling them that this is important. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it just happens to be what I've decided to dedicate part of my life to. Uh, other people dedicate it to other things. But I think they would probably say something similar is they have to see me. And sometimes that means that you're not there. Yeah. Because you're working outdoors. You're, out you're not the in the house. Yeah. Um, but my hope is, is that they'll forgive me for the time that I was away because I was trying to conserve some of the things that I think are going to be important yeah, to them of course. Um, in their future lives, you know? Okay. Well, talking about, you know, sharing, sharing the outdoors and sharing, you know, your views on conservation with, with others. Um, I, gosh, we've got a lot of things to cover here from, from <laughs> film to, I want to, I want to briefly mention um, Explore Ranches. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're a co-founder of Explore Ranches. So tell us a little bit about what that is. So some of the the um, impetus for that business, which provides opportunities for travelers to visit private lands, that's kind of the the uh, one line summary. The mission of that um, entity started really with looking at when I was at Parks and Wildlife Foundation, just the limited amount of access we actually do have mm -hmm. in Texas. And, you know, we talk about it as a 95% privately owned state, but if you break down that 5% that's public, only half of that is truly accessible mm -hmm. to you mm -hmm. or me or the rest of the public. So we're talking about two and a half percent of the state. And a lot of that is here, Padre Island National Seashore, sure. Mustang Island, Goose Island, et cetera, right? And so I thought, you know, I have access to a lot of private land just having grown up in the place that I grew up, but not everybody has that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we started thinking about me and my partners, not just that issue of access, but how do we further develop a connection between people that for the most part are living in cities and what's happening on this private land that may be at the headwaters of the Devil's River yeah. or it may be in the middle of the Davis Mountains. 
Uh, it may be in the Big Bend region, or now it may be in Scotland or Montana near Glacier, Costa Rica, all of these places. So how do we connect the, make those connections? And then looking at the trends that we were going that we're seeing now, which is you'll have the largest transfer of assets in our world's history mm -hmm. uh, in the next decade or so. And, it, and the large majority of that is in land. And so if you're seeing a huge transfer of assets to a generation that in some cases, like me, are living in a city mm -hmm. and may not have, although I grew up on the ranch, some may not have had that opportunity. And so they've lost a little bit of that connection. Sure. Yeah. So how do we yeah. solve for this issue? Uh, and generate some revenue for landowners. So it's part of the mix. So we keep these places wild and open. Mm -hmm. That's the mission. And uh, now we've got over a million acres that's in the portfolio. Wow. And a lot of that is uh, in Ted Turner's ranches out in New Mexico because he's got some really big land holdings. And his mission is to use ecotourism as a revenue generator for their conservation efforts. So they've got reintroduction of, of wolves. They've got some work that they're doing on turtles uh, and and other conservation work. And they want ecotourism to be able to, to fund, to fund that. that. So that's the essence of uh, of the business. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Like, I'm sure that gives, you know, just like you said, it gives people that would otherwise never have that opportunity or may have lost that connection. You know, it, it gives them something that's kind of once in a lifetime, right? Completely. Yeah, yeah. especially, um, I mean, gosh, any, you know, traveling anywhere in the Davis Mountains or anywhere out in the Big Bend, you know, that those are just parts of Texas that a lot of people, um, you know, it's it's way out there and they may not have the opportunity to visit. And so just getting that chance, it's it's very cool. So and, and an appreciation. So, you know, I took to test this out. I took uh, two friends who are not from Texas out to the Davis Mountains and we hiked for a couple of days and it was nothing fancy, but we got into Madera, Madera Canyon in that area and you can see the McDonald's Observatory and the um, uh, over the mountains there. And then there's a huge um, uh, rock art uh, artifact there that's probably 20 feet tall. Wow. And so you sort of are in this environment that you know humans have been inhabiting for 10,000 years or so, right? And so we get out of that and we're kind of hiking out through the clouds as sometimes you, you'll see in the Davis Mountains. And they had an appreciation for it. And they were like, wow this is really amazing and they said i didn't think texas looked like this 100 percent, right yeah. and so i drive i've been driving around the state for a number of years now and i always wonder gosh i wonder what it's like you know like across the <laughs> yeah. fence there yeah uh, i was like oh this is this is cool we can't do it for everybody and, and we can't do it in all parts of the state but our hope is is that ultimately people appreciate these places and also the landowner too sees other people appreciating what they're doing and what right. they're stewarding mm -hmm. just like lone star land stewards is meant to do and other things uh and so hopefully it's this like ecosystem that we're building and all sure. the work that we're doing to try and keep these places wild you know yeah, it just continues that cycle of stewardship yeah. and, and conservation so yeah. that's great yeah um so heading heading into we'll, we'll stay on the big bend a little bit i could sure. talk about the big bend <laughs> all day long yeah and, you know so we'll, we'll I'll, I'll try to rein myself in a little bit but I, I i lived out there um for a little while in another life i was a i was a park interpreter at big bend ranch state park okay um i was at fort leeton state historic site so um 
means a lot to me. It, I don't live there anymore, but it's definitely still where my heart is. So um, I want to talk a little bit about film. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a really good time to talk about it because uh, this episode will be available um, before our Sea to Screen Film Festival, um, June June 7th at Alamo Drafthouse, corresponds World Ocean Day. So love it. pretty, pretty great, pretty great timing. Yeah. Um, so you're a producer for Finn and Fur Films. Um, Finn and Fur was founded by Ben Masters, mm -hmm. which I'm sure listeners and viewers probably recognize that name yeah. now, um, thanks to Deep in the Heart. Um, so again, I could spend this whole podcast talking about Finn and Fur Films, yeah. but um, I, I think before I before I go too far, if people have not seen Deep in the Heart, if they haven't seen The River and the Wall, and they don't want to know what is going on in those films mm -hmm. maybe tune out because there might be some spoilers here i don't <laughs> yeah. know um i don't want anyone to tune out of our podcast but <laughs> but so you you were a producer and also you were in your character in the river and the wall and um you know that that film was very meaningful to me considering it does feature a lot of the big bend mm -hmm. um and so five mm -hmm. of you traveled the length of the texas mexico border from el paso to the gulf of mexico um along the rio grande and via various modes of transportation so tell us a little bit about that film and for those who haven't seen it you know kind of describe um a little bit about the rio grande and why it's so much more than than just a river and why it's so important from a you know conservation and wildlife management standpoint yeah there was a lot of talk at, at that time so 17 18 about the river in the texas mexico border and you know one of the things that Ben saw and then the rest of, of us exceedingly was um, we had spent time in various areas um, and uh, there was a lot of misconceptions mm -hmm. about uh, the one, the biological value, ecological value of not just the river, right? The only water source in the middle of a desert, right? Uh, the only water source to the Rio Grande Valley, mm -hmm. and that a, a large majority of the water that enters into and then ends uh, at Boca Chica at, uh, in the Gulf comes out of Mexico, uh, out of the state of Chihuahua. And then on top of that, you've got uh, research that's going on at Borderlands Research Institute that's talking about the connectivity between black bears and other species that are coming out of uh, Mexico, ultimately, and are a benefit to us mm -hmm. as Texans. Mm -hmm. And so we really wanted to showcase that. And the only way to do that, as you know, is you, you've got to get on the there. river, right? You have to get into the uh, in into that ecosystem and it changes yeah. like literally every 50 or 100 miles it changes from Chihuahuan desert and high desert to what you've got in the Big Bend which is kind of a mixture of all that stuff and you've got the high island high islands you've got Chisos you've got um, Boquillas and the Sierra Madres across the border you've got a, a wild and scenic section mm -hmm. uh, which is the only one that we've got of a river in in Texas these are national designations and then on and on and on. And so I think the idea was let's go see it for our, ourselves and let's bring some people along too who haven't traveled the entire length of it. Really, none of us had, mm -hmm. but who aren't even from the area, right? Yeah. Heather, who's in the film, is from New York originally, but she's trained a trained um, ornithologist, was doing work in the Big Bend right. on Cuckoo. And um, anyway, so that was that was the, the result. And... I think as you're finding with with this podcast and what you're doing 
yourself with film is you have to meet people where they're at and sure. how they uh, are consuming information. And increasingly, we're all consuming information in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. And so film is just one way. And it's, it's, it's a way also of if, you, if it's a feature film that you can get into the theater, mm -hmm. then, and Ben talks a lot about this, is it, it's somewhat of a religious experience oh, gosh. Uh, in Absolutely. terms of, of, of sitting down and being focused on one thing, kind of like trail running, right? Yeah, yeah. You're focused on one thing. You can leave, obviously. Most people don't. But you, you're sitting there and you're consuming something and thinking about really one thing for about 60 minutes or however long the film is. It's very rare mm -hmm. these days. And so um, I, I got uh, really interested after that in that mode of communication um, because I think that truly a picture can uh, tell a thousand, you know, it's worth a thousand words. Mm -hmm. And that uh, I think you can move people in a way through that medium that uh, is very unique. Yeah, most definitely. You know, you're you're watching a film like The Rupert and the Wall, and you know you're you're entertained. Obviously, um, yeah. I, I'm 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 sitting there watching. I just went back um, before you got here and you know watched a few few of the scenes, and so you know particularly that when you guys are in the lower canyons mm -hmm. and you've got these loaded down canoes, and you know you're going over these classly rapids, and yeah. I'm just holding my breath because <laughs> one of the greatest, the only time I've been on the river, um, it was my friend Katie and I. She had bought a canoe, and so she's just like you want to go and i was like yeah sure why not yeah and so we um we launched at rancherias in in big ben ranch mm -hmm. and then took out at lower madeira so i know that's kind of mumbo jumbo unless you've been on the river but um one of the greatest adventures of my life and yeah. i mean yeah we, we we totally flipped our canoe and and we had a it was it was just such a it was such a great trip yeah and so i'm watching you guys do do this incredible epic adventure and i'm entertained and of course i'm you know loving all of the beautiful scenery and and you know you, you've got a, a there's a point you guys just stop and you're looking at bighorn like standing mm -hmm. there and talking about how they probably cross the river um that's their water source mm -hmm. you know one of them has has a collar and so but you're seeing all of these things and you don't realize that you're also learning yeah. and you're walking away with, with, you know, a much bigger message. And so, um, you know, I, I would be interested, was there something that was, you know, particularly memorable to you about that trip? Um, you know, favorite part of that trip yeah. <laughs> or maybe least favorite part. I can imagine, you know, uh, the mountain bikes through the mud was probably, that was probably the fun. least favorite, <laughs> although it was also the most memorable. Yeah. Uh, if, if you've lived out or been out to, to big bend, um, you know, that you can get freezes and, and snowstorms that come through there pretty, pretty quickly. And so we had one come through and we were all totally unprepared. I mean, most of us are wearing shorts at that point and we're riding bikes through that, that part of uh, that stretch of the Rio Grande River. There's a, a pretty broad like delta or floodplain. And because you've got less flow now, it's all pretty permanently mud mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. although it's when it's dry it's not it's easy to to uh, ride across and so increasingly as that snow melted we went from being able to ride through it to it just completely gumming up everything wow. in on our on our bikes so they turned from like 30 pound uh vehicles mm -hmm. to like 
80 pound things that we had to, <laughs> to lug uh, for about 20, it was like 30 miles. Wow. Um, so we were, we were cold and it's pretty remote. We didn't have any support at that point. Um, I think probably that stretch from Amistad down to Laredo is not an area that most people are sure. familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, it's relatively flat. It's um, a lot of farmland, but it's really pretty. There's an area that the river flows through these limestone like flutes mm -hmm. uh, or you know channels, and there you know you're on the water in a canoe, and so they're they're maybe three or four feet above either side of you. Wow. And it's a rapid, it's not a class three or four or anything like that, but just the beauty and we caught fish when we were down there. Um, so I think generally how underrepresented and how misunderstood that river itself is, yeah. the challenges that it faces in mm -hmm. terms of uh, how much water we actually um, uh, enters into the river itself and then and then reaches the Gulf and what that does to our barrier islands and yeah. sediment flow and bays and estuaries and all that stuff, just the connectivity. And I think that was the part of the start of the thought to do deep in the heart okay. was you had this one part of Texas that we're seeing people who who are on the trip with us amazed by right and we're saying well you, if you like this you should see caprock if you like this you should see the east texas if you know yeah yeah and 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 then also people who've been involved in bigger productions like at national geographic and um, pbs nature and others who are like it, it became totally possible yeah right to to think about doing a film about the diversity of texas in a manner that you would see on planet Earth or our planet, uh, that quality, that kind of of uh, take on um, wildlife and and uh, and habitat, and so that then kind of spawned the the next film, which is Deep in the Heart. Man, that's that's great! Like excellent, excellent transition into <laughs> Deep in the Heart. Um, so you know, I think it is such an overall just you know beautiful showcase of the state of texas and you know our wildlife and our landscapes and you know i i've certainly walked away like man i'm, I'm really proud to be a yeah. texan after watching that it's one of those things where you know you, you'll go to a place and you'll take a picture and you might bring it back and show somebody and say oh well the photos don't do it justice mm -hmm, like right. i think this film did do <laughs> a lot of justice for a lot of these places and so you captured so many aspects of the state, just like you said. You know, you've got you've got East Texas, you've got the Gulf, you've got Caprock. Um, like, what what kind of planning for a, a film that is covering such a large state with so many di different eco regions? Like, how long did you guys sit and plan and for this production to come come together? Yeah, the it, it total time was about three years to from start of conception to having the film release and as far as films go like the river and the wall started conception to release was about um a year and a half okay that's pretty short time frame because you think you have to come up with whatever it is that you think you want to film mm -hmm. and then you have to raise the money to go out and do it and then you actually have to go film it and with wildlife as you know they don't always follow the script cooperate. sure and yeah. so you know ocelot was about a six to 12 month process of game camera, gathering game camera footage and then figuring out 
the trap system because it, it wasn't working and then making sure that you have cameras and and uh, uh, the box system that it sits in that are uh, not corroding the camera yeah. inside and all of that stuff. And so, and then mountain lion, which is in the Davis mountains, that's footage that's essentially captured on camera traps. Then you have to change the batteries every few weeks. So you have to have someone go down in Gosh. change these uh, camera trap batteries and then make sure that the camera actually works and that you mm -hmm. got the right angle and all of that stuff. So, you know, about three years plus, you know, when you look at who all is involved and you see it in the credits, it's like a hundred people That's incredible. between those who support you and those who are filming and then producers and um, all, by the way, not for, uh, you're not necessarily uh, getting rich off any of this stuff. Sure, it's, it's a labor yeah. of love yeah. um, from a lot of people's perspective. And then to, to identify, there's a, a little bit of a process to identify what you think is going to be a compelling story mm -hmm. that's one and then two it's okay let's talk to the scientists about what behavior might be interesting and then where would you go to film that behavior yeah and then going through the checklist of okay if we actually capture this is anybody going to think that it's interesting yeah right and that's what's been interesting to me on the being sort of an outsider on the filmmaking process is you also learn to sort of filter uh, information. So somebody who's a biologist may say, man, freshwater mussels is where it's at. Yeah, and yeah. you've got to go. And it is. It's super important, mm -hmm. right? Of course. But translating that to something that people are going to want to see and build a story around it are, are completely different. So there's a lot of stuff that ends up not making the film. Sandhill mm -hmm. Cranes, beautiful. You know, you've got that... Uh, that whole ecosystem of uh, freshwater pothole prairie up in the Panhandle. And Ben and a team had caught some of the uh, um, sandhill cranes during a snowfall. So really, really beautiful footage, but you only have 80 minutes. Yeah. And so it, it didn't make didn't make the cut. Wow. So, um, it's, it's a really, uh, from my perspective, being intellectually curious, mm -hmm caring about Texas, loving wildlife and its diversity, there's no more fulfilling and exhilarating uh, process than to, do, to, than to do the filming because you essentially get a somewhat of a PhD or a master's in each of these subjects. Absolutely. Because you got to know enough to t pass the test. Yeah. If a biologist watches this and says, that's... <laughs> That's, it's got to be factually accurate, yeah, that, right? That's not this, you know, uh, that's not a blind salamander. That's, uh, you know, whatever. Um, and then just condensing it into a form with a few words of like getting to the point mm -hmm. and, you know, making it interesting for people. It's it's a it's a really cool, like, mode of, of communication. Yeah, most yeah. definitely. I, I think what's also interesting about this film, uh, just the range of emotions that I think you yeah. go through while watching it. Yeah. Um, you know, we did a showing here um, on campus at the Performing Arts Center, mm -hmm. and it was just really cool to be, you know, we had, I think a lot of people had probably seen the film by this point. It was in September of last year. 
Um, but it was just really cool to be in that room and, and hear people, you know, just rooting for a bat, right. you know, they're like cheering for the bat and you can, you yeah. can also hear like just the collective, like sadness when, you know, you're seeing this ocelot, like calling right. out for a cub. Yeah. And, um, but also the room just erupted in cheers whenever the narrator, um, you know, may or may not mm -hmm. heard of, uh, Mr. Matthew McConaughey, yeah. um, says, you know, our, our camera team disabled this trap. Yes. And so everyone yes. just starts yeah. cheering, <laughs> but it was just, it's, it's so neat to go through those range of emotions while you're yeah. watching this, but at the same time, you know, thinking, especially, especially the bats, you know, the seeing the bat flight at Brackenbat Cave and you're seeing these little bats that, you know, I, I of course, I, I know that nature is a little hardcore and, mm -hmm. and you know, some things are, are going to be a little rough to watch, but you're seeing these little bats that have fallen and they're trying to get up to a higher higher ground so yeah. that they can take off again but they've got you know snakes coming up behind them and then the ones that are already in the air have hawks flying around and um while i'm watching this i'm rooting for the bats but at the same time all i'm thinking is this is incredible <laughs> this is an incredible shot like yeah. how did yeah. they do that so yeah. is there any are there any shots that you know particularly still when you go back and watch it that really stand out to you and that you're really really proud of yeah i think so we put skip hobby or he put himself on a scissor lift up about 20 or so feet just off the edge of bracken cave mm -hmm. and as you saw in that footage you've got this swirl of bats that start coming up and when you're standing on the edge you can actually feel the rush of wind wow and smell it yeah of course. Uh, but you can feel it <laughs> and then skip is on the edge because you've got austin alvarado that's down closer to the mouth of the cave and you can only get so close uh without a respirator so he's got a respirator on because of ammonia that's coming out of the cave mm -hmm. and he's filming the emergence and then you've got some really cool shots of you know millions of bats that are it's a it's a view of the sky so you, right. you see just you know how many there are and then he's got some cameras trained on a rat snake that is dangling off the edge. You don't, you probably don't remember it because there was so much of the coach whips, but there's a rat snake that is uh, dangling out off the edge wow. of the uh, cave and is its tail is wrapped around a, a cactus mm -hmm. and it catches a bat in midair. And we'd heard about this stuff, right? Like yeah. you hear about it from Bat Conservation International, but to actually see it in action and capture it and all of that, you realize what goes into it because those cameras are in the, and the gear is very heavy. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you're hunting or bird watching you, the, the, the wildlife has to come to you. Right. So skips on this, uh, uh, scissor lift, and a peregrine is diving and you see peregrine, you see uh, Northern Harrier and red tails mm -hmm. in the, in the film diving. Well, they're going like 40, 50 miles an hour. Wow. And so you think about trying to one, get it on your camera yeah. with a telephoto lens and then follow it and keep it in focus. There's no autofocus on these cameras. So he's having to follow something that's diving at 50 miles an hour. <laughs> and then follow it as it slows down and then captures a bat in flight that to me is like beyond once you know what's required sure. to do that it still i was watching the film on sunday we were in brian for a screening and i happened to walk back i leave the theater now because i've seen it so many times sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. and i went and got something to eat but i came back in and i couldn't 
I could have easily left and I wanted to stick around and watch that scene yeah. again because it's really just amazing. That's that's awesome. Yeah. I'm sure at the at the end of that he's like, Well, I'm done. This yeah. is this is as good as it's gonna get. <laughs> that's it. Um so you know, there there's a lot of conservation messages throughout the film. And so if if you had to, you know, give somebody advice who's who's just watched Deep in the Heart and they want to get more involved some way, shape, or form with, you know, conservation or wildlife conservation, mm -hmm. like what would what advice would you would you give? I mean, I know that's kind of a loaded question yeah. but um i think what i've learned in doing those films and then being involved in conservation and and then doing some research into the history of conservation specifically in texas whether that's um the establishment of big thicket or um, padre island national seashore Big Bend National Park, how that came to into, into creation, Big Bend Ranch State mm -hmm. Park, is you can trace almost every initiative to either an individual or a small group mm -hmm. that maybe nobody was listening to at the time, but ultimately they cared about something enough to withstand either ridicule or doubt and they obviously cared about something enough to tell a good enough story where enough people believed in them as well. And then it ultimately got to the right people or it became such a large movement that an institute like Hart was created right. or that someone decided to focus on oysters when nobody else was sure, or a particular habitat that they knew we were going to lose if, if we didn't save it. And so what I would say is, Whatever, whatever it is that you decide to do, whatever it is that you care about, whether it's a species or a habitat or a resource like water, that whatever it is that you do matters, one, mm -hmm. and you have to believe yeah. that. And then two, that whatever you do, it, it will make a difference. And so whether that's supporting a, a conservation organization, if it's going to a, to a, a film night that you all have um, and are supporting other filmmakers that you never know the impact that you're going to have For and you sure. may not see it, but somebody may watch your film and 30 years later, they're a scientist and they're studying a particular species. Yeah. Um, and so I think that ultimately is one of the takeaways from that film is that, you know, look, there are a lot of challenges that we're facing. And if you lived in the late 19, late 1800s, we would also be seeing some things that we thought were, we're not going to come back from. Of course. And that to keep up <laughs> the faith and, and also know that, that um, what you're doing and what you care about, that it, it can have an impact. You know, talking about kind of, you know, just just watching watching this film and it being, you know, something that can, you know, help people to just not only be proud of, you know, their state and where they're from, but, um, you know, also like remembering why they why they care. Mm -hmm. And so, I remember seeing the trailer for th for this film, and I was it was on just probably one of my worst days. Mm -hmm. um, it was in my previous position. I was dealing with some really, really heavy stuff. And, um, you know, it was just kind of one of those like, man, I don't know if I can do this, yeah. you know? And so I, I, but I saw that I just like opened Instagram, you know, kind of scrolling, just trying to get my mind off things. And I saw the trailer and I remembered 
okay, this is it. This is why, this is why I do this. Mm -hmm. This is why, you know, I've, I've got such a weird background in journalism and then, you know, uh, a master's in agriculture. So, <laughs> so what do I, what do I do with that? So yeah. I've got this weird background, but I'm in this opportunity. I have this opportunity to tell stories and this is why I do it. Cause I love these places. I love these animals. And, and I think, you know, again, through deep in the heart, people are able to, you know, to recognize like these places are important mm -hmm. and, and I want to do what I can to, you know, help and make sure that they're around. So, yeah. And, and I think the, you know, we early on in fundraising for some of these films got a little bit of pushback from some of the traditional foundations mm -hmm. and understandably because they're used to funding programs or, um, capital improvement projects or acquiring land. On the conservation side, there's sort of like a set of things that people are used to traditionally funding. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of wonder at, at that point, I remember thinking, well, then if they're not interested in it, well, then maybe no one else will be, right. or maybe it doesn't matter, yeah. right? It's to, to put a bad label on it, it's just a movie, mm, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that you could probably say that about it a lot of different things. Yeah. And I think collectively what what everyone's doing in the conservation space individually on you know set on its own um, might not have a huge impact, but collectively if we're all pushing in the same direction, mm -hmm. then then I then I think it, it does have an extreme impact. It takes all of us. It takes everybody. Yeah. And and not you're obviously gonna question what you're doing, I think everybody does in whatever line of work you're in, but like not letting that set you back. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's let's transition a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about the future and, yeah. and what you have coming up. So um, we're we're all super excited about this here at HRI. So you've got an upcoming film called Chasing the Tide, and it's going to highlight the Texas coast, but it's so much more than that. So tell us a little bit about the idea behind the film and what it's going to showcase and, and who all is involved. Yeah. So I spent, you know, probably the last, well, I guess I grew up on the coast, but I didn't think about that I was growing up on, mm -hmm. on the coast, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, David Yaskowitz and I think Greg Stunts and Carter Smith all have, have said over uh, their professional careers that Texas uh, is thinks of itself self as a state with a coast right and not a rather than a coastal state. state yeah and so you know i i started work with um parks and wildlife foundation about 10 years ago i guess and at that point um we were starting to try and figure out how to utilize some of the deep water horizon settlement funds and uh ended up on the project team that was working at powderhorn ranch and ended up um, conserving that and today it's a wildlife management area and it will be a state park in the future. And really that was my first dive into coastal issues and mm -hmm. because we were essentially having to um, pitch Powderhorn Ranch as the first big investment from the Gulf Environmental Benefit Fund in Texas. Okay. okay. And so we were talking about coastal erosion, we were talking about uh, sea level rise, we were talking about uh, coast, the loss of coastal prairie and wetlands and the function of that uh, coastal prairie and um, conserved land along the Texas coast in terms of freshwater inflow and quality, all of this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. 
So fast forward uh, to a few months ago, and you know, I'd spent the last year really talking about coastal issues, and um, decided that to truly understand the position that I was going into, which was executive director of Gulf of Mexico Trust, uh, and some of the work that I would be doing. Why not? get on the ground and not just sort of hop in and out of areas like Palacios and, and Bolivar Peninsula and Brownsville and, and uh, Corpus, but why not walk the coast? Wow. And so we decided back about three, four months ago that my wife and I would walk the coast, the barrier islands specifically, there are seven of them, there are 15 passes from uh, the Louisiana-Texas border all the way down to the Rio Grande River. Okay. So we had this idea and I didn't know that it had any legs and I happened to be sitting in a meeting at, with PBS Austin, with their leadership, okay. talking about something totally unrelated. <laughs> but this is a good uh, lesson, Okay. is when you're running or when you have some free time, always have like something uh, in the hopper Sure. Yeah. That if somebody asks you, so what's going on? Or if, uh, if, <laughs> if, like, if we can provide you, you with the resources, what would you want to yeah, do? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I said, you know, I got this crazy idea to walk the Texas coast, but I don't know if anybody's going to be interested in this. And these are the issues that I think we could tackle, but I don't want to work on the distribution side because I know how difficult it is yeah. to get these films in front of people. And they said, you know what? We're interested. So why nice. don't you come back in 30 days and pitch us on what the budget looks like and what all of these things um, look like. And so we started filming already because we realized that we're going to walk in October. We'll do 20 miles a day. Okay. And that to to film all of the topics, um, songbirds, songbird migration at High Island, uh, ghost wolves, which oh, are canids cool. up in Gallison yeah. with red wolf uh, genetics, uh, tarpon, the return of tarpon, uh, oysters, and all uh, that, that they uh, provide in terms of ecosystem services and what's happening there and how freshwater inflow impacts yep. um, those populations, salinity levels, whooping cranes and, and oplomato falcons and turtles. If we want to film all of this stuff, you actually have to do it outside of the walk. Yeah. So that's what we're doing right now is okay. filming a lot of these things and um, it'll We'll do a book. We'll do some um, uh, educational lesson plans associated with, associated with that that PBS will host on their site. And all of that will uh, be broadcast and streaming August of next year. Man, that's that's going to be awesome. I'm I'm really excited about it. So what, this is some, what, 300, 370 miles? 370 miles. 20 miles a day. Yeah. So... I mean, what kind of what kind of preps are, are going into this trip? Are you guys like, are you camping along the way? Or are you gonna? Okay, okay. So we'll. It's a backpacking you know, trip. <laughs> I think yeah. Take take a look at the coast and yeah. wherever you've got some kind of population, we'll probably be staying with with folks to kind of get resupplied and Fair enough, yeah. all that. <laughs> but when you get south of Freeport, so where the Colorado River enters the Gulf of Mexico. East Matagorda Peninsula, Matagorda Peninsula, San Jose Island. That's like roughly, I'll be off a little bit, but a hundred miles okay. where there is nothing. nothing. Yeah. Now there's a, there's a refuge that Parks and Wildlife manages, which is Matagorda Peninsula. I mean, Matagorda Island. Uh, and there's some infrastructure, like an old 
uh, army airfield there, but really it's uninhabited. Mm -hmm. And so we'll be camping that whole stretch and then uh, we'll camp all of, you know, Padre Island National Seashore. So uh, I'm really excited about it because to, and I was talking to my, so my daughter has me in front of her school a couple of weeks ago talking about lessons that I've learned in uh, being curious. Okay. That's and, great. I yeah. love it. <laughs> and so I use this as an example. I said, you know, I'm, I'm curious about the coast mm -hmm. and I can take a bunch of people's word for it for sure. Or I can go walk it yeah. and do, you know, the re required research in the process. And uh, I'm talking to like third graders, so I didn't use the word process, but uh, I realized, you know, this is important. And my hope is, is that, yeah, it's it's a movie. But I do think that it could spawn other things and, and create some awareness really around how important the coast is. Absolutely. We got, you know, a fifth of the population is here. We've got the largest petrochemical plant in uh, between Houston and Port Arthur in the world. Mm -hmm. um, we've got tremendous amount of uh, uh, the effects of the sea level rise will hit Galveston more so than any other part of the, of the world. And, you know, if, if people are aware of these, if they're not aware of them, they can't do anything about them. Sure. If they are aware of them, then they have a choice to make. And so that's what we're trying to do. That's great. You guys will get to see, you know, all of these things firsthand and, yeah. and being out there for so long, you know, yeah. you'll probably start to start to notice how things might be a little different. <laughs> and, but some great uh, sunrises and sunsets that's along right. the way, I'm I sure. say it's, it's my wife and I are just taking a long walk on the there beach. There you go. <laughs> so if anybody wants to join us, they're, they're welcome. We're going to need uh, some just, you know, yeah. variety as we go down the coast. For yeah. sure. Sure. Well, um, when I mean, when can we can, can we expect the film and where can people go to learn some more about it? Yeah. So uh, we have a, a website and uh, it's chasing the tide And so people can get an idea of the website there if they're we're about halfway through our fundraising. So if they're interested in that and supporting us that way, they can follow us. So we've got Instagram and Facebook. We have someone nearby uh, that's living on Padre Island who's helping us with our communications Excellent. there. Uh, and you all have been um, helpful as well. And so I would just say follow along and uh, we're going to be in the process of making this film really for the next year or so. And then uh, it'll be on PBS uh, out of Austin and hopefully statewide. statewide and then maybe even nationally starting in August of next year. That's so that's so exciting. It's going to get a lot more eyes on the Texas coast and, you know, showing how important how important it is. And, you know, that we are a, a coastal state, not yeah. just a state with a coast. That's so. Right. Um, so before you leave, I, I want to talk about the Gulf of Mexico Trust a little bit. I know we're in, you know, just the beginning stages, but you're you're the executive director and you guys are just getting started. So tell us a little bit about what it is and what's the mission and 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 what um, can you tell our viewers and listeners about what you're going to do? So we're brand new. We're about three months old. And uh, the the mission of the Gulf of Mexico Trust is really to uh, tackle some of the Gulf of Mexico and the Texas coast greatest challenges uh, with uh, Texas-based science-backed solutions. And so if you look at uh, some areas that we're going to be focused on are coastal resiliency, how do communities prepare for natural disasters, mm -hmm. how do we equip some communities that maybe don't have the resources uh, to prepare for the next hurricane or the next flood. 
looking at issues that involve multiple stakeholders like um, oysters, na natural reefs, artificial reefs, mariculture, yeah. all that's involved in that. Um, how can we be a convener of sort and try and um, be helpful in providing practical solutions to what we know is a dwindling resource? And so we're, we're um, slowly but surely identifying what those topics are. And the way that I think about it is, you know, there's going to be a uh, certain set of issues that are very urgent mm -hmm. um, and one that may come to a lot of people's mind are oysters. We of know course, that yeah. uh, there's a lot of focus on that right now. Um, we know that the uh, availability of water and uh, freshwater inflow to our bays and estuaries is critical, not just to uh, our coastal um, uh, environments, but also as a, a nursery for the Gulf of Mexico and also the, the, the people that are moving and thriving here on mm -hmm. the Texas coast. We all need water. Yeah. So those are, you know, some urgent issues that we're going to um, tackle. And then there are issues that are longer term. And, um, you know, we want to make sure that when you and I are gone and I, I, I'm not going to guess your age, but 100 years from now, <laughs> uh, at least, that, that what we did mattered. Sure. And that what we've enabled is a vibrant economy and a sustainable uh, ecosystem at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's what we're um, charged, that's what I'm charged with with doing and we're uh, putting the team together right now and, um, and really excited about what we're uh, gonna be doing. That's great. I know we're, we're all really excited, you know, to, to partner with you guys and, and, you know, be there to lend a hand. And, you know, just me from the communication side, you know, I'm happy to always share, share your messaging and, and help get the word out. So I'm really excited and we'll have to have you come back um, at a later date when you guys, you know, are, are a little bit um, farther into things and talk about how progress is going. And yeah, I think that you, you bring up uh, a, a, a really important point that none of this is possible without Heart Research Institute and um, and the, the science that's occurring up and down the coast. Um, and it's it's been a great partnership so far. We're in the early stages of it, but um, really just fortunate to be in this position and to be working on these issues with you all. Well, we're fortunate to have you. So, <laughs> all right. Well, Jay Clayberg, thanks so much for Thank you. being on the, on the Gulf stream. And again, don't be a stranger. Come back, come back soon. <laughs> I'm around. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, consider contributing to a greater Gulf by visiting heartresearch.org. That's H A R T E research.org. Thank you.